think whenever you're ready, you give me a thumbs up. Well, good morning, everyone, and uh, it's sure great to have heard uh, Patty's testimony this morning. Um, just so wonderful to see how the Lord has worked in her life and how she has thought through uh, biblically and from heaven's perspective uh, all that she has faced. Truth really is better than fiction, isn't it? The story that we're looking at this morning as well in the scripture is chock full of all kinds of uh, incredible uh, drama and surprise and intrigue. There are critics in this text. There are followers and spectators and incredible interrupters as well, of course, and uh, lessons to be learned. Um, so in this study of the Gospel of Mark, we're in chapter 2 now, and we're going to be looking at a, a passage of Scripture that is just right in keeping with the very full and stressful life that Jesus began in his ministry. Uh, Mark is, seems to be earnest about displaying that in the, in the passages that we're looking at. Overnight, Jesus became the most popular teacher in all of Judea, and um, we've studied already about some of that busyness, but yet Jesus in the middle of it all taking the time to go alone with God and his Father. And, and, um, and so this morning, as we uh, think about uh, the life of Jesus in Mark chapter 2. I just want to make an observation that many times it is the interruptions of life that, um, that provide for God's agenda for us. And, and in the life of Jesus, we see this. We see interruptions. And um, in the passage that we're going to look at today, we're going to see some major interruptions. One of the things that we um, experienced in Bolivia at various times was the interruptions that come Last time that we were there in Bolivia, uh, just over a year ago, uh, I was teaching at a pastor's conference on the book of Exodus, and a couple came into the room and interrupted the meeting. It was a former a couple of students that are married. Uh, he's a pastor, and, and they uh, just came to the right to the front and took the microphone and just said that there had been an accident. Her brother was in a motorcycle accident and was having surgery and needed blood transfusions. Now, in a poor country like Bolivia, if, you are, uh, if you're poor and uh, you need to get blood transfusions, you need to find your own donors. And so she had come asking for prayer as well as uh, looking for um, some blood donors. And so I, we prayed for the situation, and then uh, I carried on teaching while uh, various people went to them at the back of the room. And by the end of that session, we had three three people that were going to be going down to the hospital to give blood, and the next day there were a few more that uh, were going over. And uh, uh, that situation was fairly easy to, to decide upon in the moment. But sometimes it takes a lot of discernment to know when to let the interruption take its course and attend to it, and when to stay focused on the task. When we look at the life of Jesus, we see that he... He didn't always accept interruptions. Many times we see in the Gospels where we uh, see that he told evil spirits to be quiet and he would not let them speak. There's one time in chapter 3 of, of the Gospel of Mark, in a few weeks we'll be looking at it, when Jesus was interrupted by uh, the message that his mother and his brothers were outside and, and he did not let that interruption deter him from the teaching that he was doing. And... Um, 
as strange as it may sound, it seems that in the ministry of Jesus, sometimes he even welcomed interruptions, though, and uh, the interruption became the lesson for the day. We see that. And that's perhaps a sign of an incredibly master teacher in tune with the Holy Spirit to know which interruptions are from God and to know how to weave them into the lesson for others. And that's what we see happening in Mark chapter 2, beginning with verse 1, when we see Jesus uh, healing a paralytic, a man who was paralyzed. Can you imagine the scene that is unfolding in Mark chapter 2 in this passage? Presumably, Jesus was teaching in someone's house, likely Peter, Simon Peter's house in Capernaum. And uh, typically, since the teachers of the law were present, they had the best seats in the house. It says in verse 6 that they were seated. seated. And uh, perhaps the only chairs in the house. In fact, I can imagine in my mind that, that uh, likely what happened was that they saw the commotion happening over there. They heard about this uh, teaching session that was starting up. And, and so in their long flowing robes, they walked in and whoever was sitting in the front row with the chairs now was not sitting there. And the teachers of the law were given those places of honor. And as we see the text unfold, we can imagine that that probably at some point in the teaching, people started noticing that there was a commotion happening on the roof. Now, archaeologists tell us that the houses in Capernaum at this time were thatched roofs, most likely a flat roof, a structure that was made of wooden cross beams overlaid with matting of reeds, branches, and then dried mud or clay that was kind of baked or hardened by the sun, and it would actually hold people up. They, sometimes the roof was sturdy enough to be a sitting area in the cool of the day or extra sleeping space for visitors at night. In any case, uh, uh, there was no way of being inconspicuous for these four friends who bring their friend, who is a paralytic, to Jesus. And uh, there would have been no way of avoiding dirt and dust and grass and branches falling on the people below or on the floor below as the opening in the roof was made to lower this man through. The four men would have had to peek in and see where it was that was the best place. And perhaps even Jesus stood back and watched this whole spectacle in progress as he, as he was teaching. Once an opening was made wide enough, slowly then a mat with rope tied to the four corners to this hammock-like apparatus would have been lowered until this man actually rested on the floor right ahead of Jesus and perhaps right ahead of the teachers of the law who were sitting on the chairs in the front row as well. It would have been an interruption hard to ignore. And perhaps the most remarkable thing about this passage of Scripture is what happens next. We read in verse 5 that when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now the word their faith is plural. When he saw the faith of the four men that were peering through the hole in the roof, and perhaps the paralytic as well, when he saw their faith, he said what he said. And the first words might have been a shock to everyone present. Your sins are forgiven. Can you imagine if Jesus had said, now after that, take up your mat, go home, because I, I have other unfinished business here. I have a lesson to finish. Uh, Jesus knew that this would not have reached anyone just to say your sins are forgiven, but not to have given any demonstration that in fact it was reality and he had been forgiven. And he knew in fact, according to the passage, that the teachers of the law were thinking that very thing. 
that only God has authority to forgive sins. And so how can this fellow say this? Now we need to understand that many Jews at the time of Jesus believed that all disease and all affliction was the direct result of sin. Either your sin or your parents' sin. That's why in John chapter 9 when Jesus encounters a man who was born blind, the disciples ask him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? That was their default reaction because that's the theology they, they had been taught. And Jesus responds by saying in John 9, neither this man nor his parents had sinned. It seems like in every, in every generation, every age, there are those who believe that, it, that, that if everything is not going well for you, it is because you have either sinned or you don't have enough faith. That doctrine seems to creep into every generation in one form or another. And so it's very likely that this paralytic had been taught this very teaching. And in fact, it may have been by the very teachers of the law from his town, Capernaum, sitting in the front row in that room. They had, they had taught him that his paralysis was the result of his sin or his parents' sin. And so could it be that contrary to our way of thinking, that, that for Jesus to speak these words and for this paralytic to hear them might have actually been something overjoyful for him to hear. Jesus wants people to know that he's not just spouting off though, and so he wants to go on to explain why he has authority to forgive sin. Now from the outline in your bulletin, this green insert, you'll notice that there are three points that I would like to make from this passage of Scripture. And uh, they come from uh, David Garland's the NIV application commentary where uh, he comments in form to these three things. And I'd like to expand on them. The first thing is a, a Christological point that God alone forgives sins, God alone heals diseases, and Jesus is God. At the time of Jesus, you see, in the Jewish religion, only a priest could pronounce forgiveness of sin, and it was always on the basis of repentance, restitution, and the proper sacrifices being made. We see this in Leviticus 4 and 5 and 16 and so on. But Jesus is addressing this man as though he had authority to override such uh, conditions and step right up to the place of judge and offer forgiveness directly from heaven. This is called the Christological point because if Jesus is indeed not authoritative to do such a thing, if he's not God in the flesh, then he could never do such a thing. And therefore, he does not have authority to forgive sins. Whenever I am speaking with someone from another faith tradition, a background, not uh, orthodox Christian faith, but the Jehovah's Witness beliefs or Mormons or some other group, one of the fundamentals of our faith stands or falls on this very, very point that Jesus is God. If Jesus is not really God in the flesh, as the Bible teaches, then I would not follow him for his death and his, and his resurrection would have no authority to actually cancel my sin because of the sacrificial death that paid for it. He would be, his death would be no more than a teacher or any other prophet. And so this is the, the Christological point. And Jesus makes it clear in verse 10 that this is the big idea. This is the main point. Jesus says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, 
and go home. That was the goal of Jesus' teaching. And later on, the same critics present in verse 17, Jesus again refers to the precedence of the spiritual over the physical. And uh, in this passage, we must see the supremacy of Christ over disease and illness, yes, but primarily over sin. And we're going to come to that, and that leads us to our second point. The second point in our, in our outline is the restoration purpose, that Jesus has been sent to bring forgiveness for sin and open up the way for God's reign to be restored into all spheres of life. And though this paralysis in this man's life was not likely caused by this man's sin or his parents directly, as the Jewish teachers held that it had, it was indirectly caused by sin, just like all sickness and all disease are the result of the fall into sin by our race. In Genesis 3, we read about that. And so in a very broad and universal way, the ministry of Jesus is to restore all things to their rightful place. The Bible teaches us that when sin entered this world through disobedience of the human race, our relationship with God was broken and everything changed. Sin entered and, and with it came death. And with dying came all that comes with dying, aging, disease, accidents, the presence of evil, everything. But the coming of Jesus can be described as a restoration of everything that sin has marred and twisted. Everything that prevents a person from coming into the presence of God or experiencing the wholeness of God and His created order. Unclean spirits, diseases, illness, paralysis. The purpose of Jesus is to restore all things so that the reign of God can be in our lives fully and finally and forever. That's why we read in Colossians chapter 1, verse 19, that God was pleased to have all of His fullness dwell in Him and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by peace made through His blood shed on the cross. You see, the ministry of Jesus is to right every wrong, every wrong that ultimately can be traced back to sin entering this world and evil inflicting itself on the human community and on individuals. If, if Jesus is not that kind of a God, then, then we, are, we are following the wrong Lord. In Revelation 21, as we see the vision of heaven with Jesus Christ as the center being worshipped and adored throughout all eternity, we read in verse 4 that at that time, He will wipe away every tear from our eyes. There will be no more death, no more mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And this is the purpose of Jesus, as Lord of lords, to right every wrong, to restore the Garden of Eden that was, was once uh, our, our habitation, to restore the relationship with God, that sin will no more be affecting us. You asked maybe, why don't we see more of this now? Why don't we see Jesus doing this restoration more now? We do see healings. We do see restorations taking place. But why don't we see more of it? And, and the, the, the easiest answer, not saying that it's, it's sufficient to all of our inquiring minds, but the best answer that I can think of is that it's because we live in this period of history that some have described as the already but not yet period of history. 
the time between the first and the second coming that we live in right now, the second coming of Jesus Christ. Jesus has already come and displayed His power and authority. He has already accomplished our redemption, already overcome our sin and death for all who would put trust in Him. And yet we await a time when He will return. We are not yet experiencing fully all of the benefits of that restoration. On June the 6th, 1944, the Allied forces stormed from the beaches of Normandy and overcame Hitler's army. That was actually the beginning of the end for Hitler that day. And at the cost of tremendous sacrifice, literally thousands of lives, D-Day was a victory day and Hitler was conquered ultimately because of everything that took place on that day, even though the battles would still go on. 2,000 years ago at the cross of Calvary, there was a spiritual D-Day. When Christ died on the cross, He stormed the beaches of sin and hell, and He rose three days later as the victor. And yet the battles continue. The battles over evil. Satan is alive and well on planet Earth. We do see Him like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. We do see sin that can run rampant and we sin against ourselves and against one another. And we see that. The battles continue. But victory day will come when Jesus comes again and establishes His kingdom fully and finally and forever, and He restores all things. That is our hope. That's what Jesus Christ came preaching the first time He came to this earth. And the second time will be to fully consummate His kingdom. And this leads to our third and final point. It has to do with the human problem. This passage shows us that human intelligence and science does not solve all of the problems of sickness, suffering, and death. It shows us that physical well-being, which is, of course, exalted in, in our age especially, perhaps, is not the essence of life or of the Christian life. See, the Gospel of Mark, the author is not interested in explaining why bad things happen to good or bad people or anyone else. He is writing from an altogether different paradigm. See, this purely mechanistic approach to human suffering is insufficient to answer all of the problems that we face. You see, we're convinced that we can live longer, we can avoid cancer, we can dodge the disease bullets just by having the right gene pool, eating right, having high fiber, low cholesterol, exercise right, take the right medicines, and so on. We think we can control our destiny. We've been taught that we can advance further and further. And three cheers for healthy living, God would say so. We would say so. We need to take care of this temple, this body that God has given us to live in for 70 or 80 or more years. But nonetheless, it is still a body that is so imperishable, the Bible says, and raised imperishable. It is nonetheless a, a temple that is like a jar of clay, Paul says in Corinthians. And the treasure is inside the jar of clay. The treasure is not the jar of clay. That one day we'll put aside this, 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 this body that God has given us and we will take up a new body. And so when we approach our problems in a mechanistic and compartmentalized fashion, assuming that there are fixed boundaries between body, mind, and soul, we are gravely mistaken. 
When we pride ourselves in being an advanced civilization that has moved beyond primitive superstitions about illness or disease or evil spirits, and we presume that given more time and more money and more research, we can even solve all of our physical, psychological, and emotional problems, we are very gravely mistaken. Sometimes people do suffer for their own sin, or sometimes someone else's sin causes us to suffer. And sometimes it's difficult to discern just why suffering is happening. But what the Bible categorically affirms is that there is a direct link between humanity's fallen state into sin and every suffering and everything that afflicts us. Too many people read stories in the Bible today about lepers and paralytics and demon-possessed or demonized people, and they assume that had they lived in our age, we could have healed them, we could have helped them, and perhaps indeed this is the case, for, for all knowledge is God's knowledge, and all truth is God's truth, but they are blind to the deeper issues of life. Like an old Chinese proverb that said, if you want to know what water is, don't ask the fish. People of today that are immersed in our culture and worldview will not easily give up on trusting in themselves. David Wells, in a book by, by him called Above All Earthly Powers, talks about how that, that the 20th century that, that gave light to the modern world promised us so much and did not deliver. And now in our postmodern world, we are living with such meaninglessness. And it's because we've been immersed into this idea that, that we can be the, the captains of our own destiny and fate. And, and so many times that Jesus, when Jesus does not heal someone of an illness or a paralysis, physically heal in that way as, as Patty has distinguished this morning in her testimony between the kinds of healings, God might be saying when He doesn't heal that this is the very thing that I'm not going to give you because if I gave it to you, it would, it would be taking away the thing that causes you to look beyond this world for a solution to your problems that, that rest in something beyond the physical. Jesus said, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? Matthew 16, 26. What does that verse say to a, a consumer society like we live in that is rich in things and poor in soul? The Greek verb that is used in the text in our passage in Mark chapter 2, the Greek verb for forgiveness when Jesus spoke forgiveness to this man is a word that refers to sending or driving away. Jesus drove away this man's sin and freed him from all that bondage. He gave him a taste of restoration. And the primary reason that he did so, again in verse 10, verse 10 sorry, is that he may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, take up your mat and go home. That was the goal, restoration, that he would know that Jesus can forgive sins and all sin. It's very interesting in this passage, as soon as Jesus spoke the word, the crowd in the house, which didn't part to let the sick man in, now parts like the Red Sea to let the healed man out. And um, it's very interesting to think about how it is that we could apply this passage of Scripture. Would you let me just conclude with thinking about some of the questions for reflection that might be, uh, might, we might be able to address. Some of them are listed in your, in your insert. 
the different ways to apply this passage is to think about the paralysis. There are different things that give us a, a paralysis. And it, it could be something like unable to be loved or love. It could be a personal or private area that you're struggling with and you're paralyzed partly because you have not opened up your mouth to share with someone else and so you're not experiencing the help that you could have of others that could bring you to Jesus just like these four friends brought this man to Jesus. How is it that a paralysis might be taking place in your life and what does this passage have to say to us about the church today? How are the paralytic's four friends to be a picture of us in the church today? Helping one another draw near to Jesus in a way that uh, we cannot draw near by ourselves. I believe that in this passage that, that God has a lot to teach us. And so I would encourage you in your, in your private time with God to think on these questions, perhaps in your families or in your, and in your life groups, maybe this week you can discuss what are some of the things that we learn from this passage about the church. And perhaps on a more private level, there are some individuals you could share with of a paralysis that you want help with. And you know the source of that help is in Jesus Christ alone. May God bless us today. Amen.